Morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to see you on this uh, snowy, icy, strange uh, weather day. I got a note from Deborah. She got a text from Sandy and said that Casey fell on the ice as they were getting ready to come over here and hurt his back. So um, in a moment, I want to pray for them before we start the sermon. And then secondly, uh, Gideon has left us in suspense on why he and I are going to Stuttgart uh, next week. So I thought I might just fill it a little bit, uh, a little bit on that. Um, we have a, a church in our denomination in Stuttgart, another international uh, Presbyterian church. Church. Um, and uh, a new minister is being installed over there, and they asked, uh, that minister asked if I would join the commission to ordain him to that work. So um, Gideon and I are going to travel over together, and I'll be on that commission to ordain this young man. He's a former uh, U.S. Army Ranger, uh, and then afterwards uh, went to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and now he's moving himself, his wife, and uh, I believe they have a child as well, uh, to, uh, to Stuttgart, Germany, to uh, do a similar work that we're doing here. And so it's a delight for, for myself and Gideon to go over to support him in that. Um, moreover, Lord willing, Gideon will uh, be uh, ordained later this year. He is under care of our presbytery and is uh, working to get ready for the examinations for ordination. And so this is a good uh, experience for Gideon to see what he's signing up for as well. So uh, pray for our time there. We're going to leave this coming Friday, and we will return on the Monday, uh, Lord willing. Uh, with that said, let's pray before we get into the sermon, most particularly for Casey here this morning. Heavenly Father, we lift up Casey and Sandy, and we were looking forward to seeing them this morning, and we're grieved to hear that Casey fell and uh, hurt his back um, because of the ice. We pray that you would bring uh, quick healing to his back, and that you would bless and encourage him this morning, as I know they were excited to be here. Lord, we pray that you would um, bless them uh, this morning as he recovers. And Lord, also we do pray for safe travels to Stuttgart. We, we pray for Dylan Halter and his family as they have made the move from the U.S. to Stuttgart and are preparing to uh, lead and pastor that church. I pray that you would give Dylan and his family peace, that you would provide all that they need for the work, and that you would gather around them at that church. Um, many uh, faithful and uh, supportive church members to help continue the good work that you have done for so many years at that church. As Dylan takes the reins, Lord, we pray for your blessing on him, that the word would be preached, that the people would receive the preach word, and that you would do, as we pray here in our midst, that you would do the work of salvation and sanctification in the church in Stuttgart, as we pray for us in Stavanger too. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians as we continue our walk through the Bible. 1 Thessalonians is a really interesting book. And the theme of the book is reflected in the sermon title this morning, Sanctified for the Second Coming. Sanctified for the Second Coming. You know, we are now 2,000 
in some years, some odd years, I'm not a math guy, I'm a Bible guy, you can do the math from around AD 33 to now, but we are 2,000 some years past our Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And it can be easy to think, well, the Lord's probably going to be slow in coming because he hasn't come yet. So, therefore, maybe we can slack off a little bit. And, you know, it's, to me, it seems like that is a logical problem for the church in the 21st century. But, you know, it was a problem for the church in the first century as well. Is the Lord slow in coming And if the Lord is slow in coming, do we really need to care that much about how we live now? Is he really going to come back? Or should we simply live like the world? You know, when it seems like the second coming is a long way off, it's easy to live like the world. It's certainly true today, but it was also true in the first century. And Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to encourage them to be sanctified and to be ready for the day of the Lord. And so it's a message for them as well as for us. I want to show you four things from Paul this morning as we uh, seek to get an overview of 1 Thessalonians. And the first point is this. Paul rejoices in the Thessalonians' conversion and witness. Paul rejoices in the Thessalonians' conversion and witness. And we see in the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians, Paul rejoices in the trifecta of being a Christian. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of what love is, you know, and saying, you're not this. What are the three things that will remain? Faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love. And those three things are evident in the church of Thessalonica. Look at chapter 1, uh, verse 2 and 3. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you and our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Paul is rejoicing that the church is remaining faithful to the Lord in their work, that they are known for their labor of love, that is, they're serving one another is done in a spirit of love and that they are remaining hopeful, steadfast in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. With full conviction. So Paul is rejoicing that a true and genuine work has happened in Thessalonica. The church is a legitimate church. The work of the gospel has truly been bearing fruit in them to the degree that it came 
to them with the power of the Spirit and with full conviction. And more than that, we see a second thing that Paul rejoices in is that their example of faith has been seen by others as they wait for Christ's return. Paul says in verse 6, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul begins with this church by rejoicing in their faith, their hope, their love. And then their example of these things that has spread abroad to the churches beyond. So you have Thessalonica, and then it's spreading into Macedonia, and it's spreading down to Greece. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, in the Roman Empire, the faith of the Thessalonians is spreading everywhere. And for that, Paul rejoices. And that Paul rejoices. So the first thing we see is that a true work is happening. In this first point, Paul rejoices in the Thessalonians' conversion and witness. It's a true and real thing. Their faith is vibrant. Their faith is renowned. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, as they have now turned from the idols of the Greco-Roman Empire, to serve the living and true God. That witness is spreading. And Paul rejoices in it as they are waiting for the Lord of heaven to return. So these are all good things we see as we begin 1 Thessalonians. And this is a contrast, isn't it, to example, like what was going on in Galatia. We saw in Galatians that their conduct was not in step with the gospel and was threatening the gospel witness. Here we see the opposite, where we see the Thessalonians fervent in faith and hope and love. So then why is Paul writing the letter? And that gets to the second thing I want you to see this morning from this book. Number two, that Paul shares his desire to supply what is lacking in their faith. So the second point Paul shares his desire to supply what is lacking in their faith. What we see here is that just because a good work began in you, it doesn't mean it's time to just stop and rest on your laurels. We talked about this a little bit last week, where uh, I think that a lot of the modern evangelical kind of trend is to look Back, backwards, what's your spiritual birthday? When were you baptized? When did you say the, the sinner's prayer? When did you confess faith in Jesus? And it's looking back. And if you've got that, then you're, you're good. 
That's, that's not all evangelicalism. I'm just saying that's a trend that I have observed in my, uh, now I think, how many years it's been as a pastor? It's been, been a while. I think I'm going on year 10 or something like that. But at any rate, I have seen this trend in the broader evangelical world to look backwards rather than forwards. And when we see in the Christian life, in the New Testament, the call is far less to look back at where you were. It's to look ahead at where you're going and to persevere in the faith, to keep going. And here we see in the second point that Paul still has a need to supply something that's lacking in their faith, that there's still more to go as the day of Christ approaches. In this, as this letter moves on, we see in chapter 2 Paul's desire to return to the Thessalonians, to continue the work that he began in them. And he recalls in chapter 2, verse 17, how Satan had hindered them from coming again. Look at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Paul here is reminding us, as he's reminding the church, that we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual war for the ages. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, is the, the very tip of the spear of this warfare as he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul is letting us know here that Satan was actively seeking to prevent Paul from continuing to minister to the churches that he planted. And so much so we've seen in other letters where Paul has to defend himself, like in Corinth, for his actions because some are saying, well, he doesn't really care about us. He, when's the last time he came to visit? And Satan is both hindering Paul from meeting the churches through Paul's own afflictions, but then is also creating rumors of Paul's lack of love for the churches by the fact that he's not showing up as often as he should. You see the enemy working both sides. And so Paul is in a, a much more mild way than in a letter like uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is reminding the church of his love for them and why he's not been able to come back. But we see Paul nevertheless remind the church of his love for them and what his greatest joy is. Look verse 19, and this should be true of every minister of the gospel. I hope it's true of me. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's chief joy in his life was the living faith of the Christians that God saved through his preaching and of the churches that he 
planted. That's what Paul lived for. That's what he suffered for. That's what he died for. And all of it was that he would experience the fullness of joy at the day of glory when Jesus returns in the second coming. So having established that, we now see that Paul's desire to visit the church was so that they wouldn't be moved by affliction. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 5. He's going to talk about how he could bear it no longer, so he sends Timothy to see about their faith. In verse 3, that no one would be moved by these afflictions. So not only Paul is coming under the afflictions of the enemy, but also the church of Thessalonica. Are they going to lose faith because life is hard? Are they going to lose faith because they're being persecuted because they're not fitting in with the culture? They're not going to the temple anymore. They're not seen going to the temple to support the cult of the Roman Empire. They're not in their workplaces supporting the gods of their local guilds. The carpenters aren't worshiping the gods supporting the carpenters. The church members in their workplaces are not supporting the gods of the potters as they're doing their pottery. They are threats and enemies of the state from the eyes of the Roman Empire. They're not fitting in with the culture. And so... Wouldn't it just be easier to just give in and kind of save face so you don't have to deal with that? Just go along with the social cultural agenda of the day to support the latest social movements that are contrary to the gospel just for the sake of fitting in. And alleviating the affliction that you face as Christians. And so Paul sent Timothy to see that they would not be moved by these things. But now finally, Paul is writing because he wants to visit them face to face. And the reason is that he might supply what's lacking in their faith. Look at verses, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul had received an encouraging report from Timothy, and then so he responds to that in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may, uh, f- that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's saying, hey, you guys are doing well. And I've sent Timothy, and he gave a good report, and we are so encouraged. But now I'm endeavoring all the more to see you face to face, that I may still supply what's still lacking in your faith for the day of Christ. And so he prays then for this. And this is the heart of the letter In chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, this is the heart of the letter. If you want the key to 1 Thessalonians, it's right here in Paul's prayer where he says, Now, 
May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And now here's the key, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What is lacking in the Thessalonians' faith is that they are yet to be blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul is putting two things forward here. One, he's reminding them, Jesus is coming, and he's going to come with all of his saints. Makes me think of Revelation 19, where you have Jesus on the horse and with his army behind him. Jesus is coming in his good time. He will come. And how should we be found on that day? He wants us to be found blameless in holiness. I've said it many times that when I first moved to this country, I was told by a number of Norwegian Christians that a kind of non-lordship theology was a very prevalent kind of uh, belief, whether it was uh, intellectually uh, believed and asserted or just subconsciously, this idea that uh, Jesus can be your savior, but he doesn't have to be your Lord. So again, you know, you pray the prayer, and that's good, but how you, he's, how you live doesn't matter. But what we see here. I think Paul could write the same letter to so many of us today as that praying the prayer is not enough. We must be blameless in holiness for the day of Christ. And that was true in the first century, and it's true now. And we must strive to be blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord. And that's what Paul is going to dig into then in the rest of this letter All of this, the first three chapters, have been to build to this point to remind them that your sanctification is God's will for you. And actually, they are suffering deficiencies in how they understand the return of Jesus that's actually causing them to grow slack in their faith. Or, another way of interpreting this book is to say, that they are doing well, but Paul is sensing threats that may hinder them if they allow the enemy to infiltrate the church, to succumb to these things that he's going to lay out. If you look at your worship folder, I gave you uh, an outline as I've been doing throughout this series on page four. Just to give you a general overview of the book. Point two, where it says Paul addresses threats to, the Thessalon- uh, to Thessalonica's readiness for Christ's return. This is really the heart of the letter, and we see three things here. A disregard for holiness, ignorance about the death of Christians, grieving without hope, and falling asleep before Christ's return. That's like a spiritual apathy. These are three huge threats that either are starting to infiltrate the Thessalonians or Paul senses that they may and he's coming to supply what's lacking in their faith. And I think as we look at this, we can find that uh, Stavanger is in Thessalonica 
right? Many places in this world is in Thessalonica. The problems that Thessalonica had are the same problems we have. And so we need to hear this word today as well, don't we? So let's then, in this third point, let me give you the third point. Paul addresses threats to the church's readiness for Christ's second coming. Let's look at these then together. The first threat is a disregard for holiness. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We see a disregard for holiness. And again, it seems as though the Thessalonians are doing all right, because in verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So this is different than the church of Corinth, where Paul has to threaten to come down and beat them with a rod, because their, their pride and arrogance is, is so far out of hand that nothing but the most extreme measures uh, are necessary. Here, Paul's encouraging a faithful church to remain faithful. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. And what a great call this is, because the older we get, especially as Christians, the easier it is to just start to slide or to plateau. But Paul's saying you're not done Till either you die or the Lord returns, you're not done. So as you're doing, do so more and more. Do so more and more. Verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? What does sanctification mean? Sanctification is, uh, the root word of sanctification is holy, holiness. Hagios is in the Greek. Not that that uh, it matters for, for you guys, but this root, hagios, holiness, is the idea of sanctification. And holiness at its root meaning means set apart. It means set apart. So, for example, in the, in the Levitical uh, system in the Mosaic Covenant, in the, the tabernacle, in, and in the temple, things were sanctified by blood so that they were set apart for worship. They were made holy for being instruments in the worship of God. And in the same way, the church has been sanctified by the blood of Christ and is now set apart for the work of the Lord. For his purposes, we are his people. We belong to him. This, again, cuts at our individualism of Western society, and as, which includes Norwegian society. We are not our own, to quote Paul elsewhere. We are bought with a price. We are called to be holy. And Paul tells us in verse 3 that God's, what's God's will for you? You know, you're starting a new year. What's God's will for me in this year? Well, among other things, we know for sure, because it's written in God's word, God's will for each one of us is our sanctification. Paul goes on in verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and 
and honor. Not like your neighbors. That's my insertion. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, right? Those around, those around the Thessalonian Christians who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So think about this. If we live and if we embrace the culture that as long as you prayed the prayer, you're fine. Look at who our enemy becomes. Who does our, who, who does our enemy become? Is it Satan or God? Look at verse 6, halfway through. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God called us for impurity. Not, uh, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you the Holy Spirit. So that when we sin, but especially when we deliberately, knowingly, willfully sin, we are disregarding God. So this non-lordship theology is no theology whatsoever, that Jesus can be my Savior, but he doesn't have to be my Lord. Jesus is our Lord, and his will for us is our sanctification, to press on in the faith. When we talk about sanctification as well, we could see, we've, we saw, for example, in the letter of Ephesians, where Paul called the church to speak the truth to one another, that we might, every member might be mature in Jesus. So the ultimate goal is maturity. Paul said that, we saw that last week in Colossians as well, him we proclaim that we might present every member mature. And so the reason that we gather as the church, the reason God gives us one another is that we would become mature in the faith, that we would grow in the knowledge of God, we would grow in hope, we would grow in our love for one another, and that we would fight sin together, not just on our own. It's a team effort. We fight sin together. And so a disregard for holiness is a tremendous threat to the church in every age, just as it was for the Thessalonians. The second threat that Paul deals with in this letter we find in chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, which is an ignorance about the death of Christians that is grieving without hope. It seems that some were being uh, impacted by the Greco-Roman view of death, in that they were grieving Christians as if they're not coming back. That once you're dead, you're done. You may go off into a spirit realm somewhere, but it seems like another threat perhaps to the doctrine of the resurrection. We don't know for sure. But that's what seems likely here. Paul says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for those who are dead. 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, so to correct this uh, inappropriate attitude to death that's uh, appearing to be manifest in the Thessalonian church or Paul sees it as a likely threat to the church, he's reminding them of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. He's like, you need to know this for your sanctification. And here he hones in on the resurrection. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So again, we've already seen this. Jesus is coming back with his saints. And Paul says that again here. Jesus will, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This, this uh, statement that Paul makes here, reminding them of when Jesus comes back, the resurrection's going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise. And then we will be caught up with him and so forever be with the Lord has caused a lot of interpretive speculation through the years of the church. But one interpretation that I find interesting is the interpretation that says that Paul is using, again, the image of the Roman triumph, the Roman uh, triumphal procession as a metaphor of Christ's return. Okay, Paul has used this idea of the triumph, uh, the Roman triumph before. We've seen it in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, for example. We've seen it other places, too. And this idea is that when a general has defeated a great army, he's going to come with captives behind him and slaves, some that they will execute in celebration of the gods. But as the... As the Roman army and the general at the head is coming to the city to celebrate, they first pass through the graves of the citizens, and then the citizens of the city come out and meet the Roman general in celebration, and then they go back into the city and celebrate the victory that the gods had given to them. And we see this kind of idea that Paul is uh, I, it's not a parody, but Paul is kind of using as a cultural understanding of what Christ's return will be like when he comes. He's going to come as the, the king, the reigning king of the universe, the Lord of heaven, with his saints, and the dead will rise first. And then we who are left alive will join with them and so forever be with the Lord. And Paul's reminding of these things, of the greater triumph, the true triumph, that Christ will come. 
he will raise the dead. And that the Christians who have been slaughtered for the faith and the Christians that have died naturally die in hope of the resurrection so that we do not grieve as those who have no hope that what we lost, we have lost forever. It's only a momentary parting. And in the grand scheme from God's sense of time, who lives outside of time, it is but a blink of an eye. It's but a blink of an eye. It feels like an eternity to us when we've lost someone we loved. Will we ever see them again? It feels like an eternity. And the closer that person was to you, the longer that time seems to be. But in, from God's perspective, it's a blink of an eye. And then we will be back. So Paul exhorts them in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. You know, the first person we buried in this church was a preborn son that we lost. We haven't had a funeral of, uh, of a church member here yet, but I'm sure that will happen at some point or another. And I'm sure in the course of time, we're going to lose siblings or parents or others along the way. And it will be good to remember these words at such a time that we can encourage one another with the hope of the resurrection. Without that, it's a huge threat to our readiness. Because when we start grieving like the world, we start just becoming like the world. And we start to satisfy ourselves with the things of the world. And that's not fitting for the people of God, whose greatest hope is in heaven at the right hand of God. The third and final threat that we see to the church's readiness for the second coming is falling asleep on the field of battle falling asleep on the field of battle. In the worship folder, I put falling asleep before Christ's return, but I want to sharpen that point just a little bit, and I'll explain why. Falling asleep on the field of battle. We see in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, this final threat that Paul seeks to deal with. And again, it deals with a, a wrong understanding of eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. Paul says in chapter one, of verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul is concerned that the church will fall asleep on the field of battle. Now, why do I use the field of battle language? It's because Paul evokes the armor of God language again here in this passage. I hope you picked up on that in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Also reminding them what side, what army they're part of. <laughs> Look back up at verse 5. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You got to make sure when you get up in the morning, you're putting the right jersey on. Are you wearing the world's uniform or the Lord's? You know, what battle dress are you wearing? The world's or the Lord's? And being reminded that Jesus' return is imminent. And again, to us, we have to remember the Lord's time is not our time. Under, our understanding of time is, you know, is one year seems like a long time. If you're a kid, five minutes seems like a really long time. To the Lord, it's a blink of an eye, right? A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. But here he's reminding us to not fall asleep. Don't, Christian, don't fall asleep because the Lord's coming back and he can come at any time. And he's going to come at a time where others are saying there's peace and security. So don't let the ease of 2024 cool your zeal for Christ and to be ready. And to each day get up to wage the good warfare that we've been called to wage. Remember we saw that in, the, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, how we're to stand side by side, striving, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And that same message is coming to the church of Thessalonica. Put on the armor, brothers. Put on the armor, sisters, the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet for hope of salvation. Notice that holy trifecta here again of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Put these things on. Walk as children of light, because that's who you are. You're not children of darkness, so don't live like them. Don't act like them. And again, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here again, we've seen in so many places in the New Testament why the church must gather. Because we're called to encourage one another. To encourage one another and to build one another up. And we can't do that if we're not gathered together. When we don't know each other, when we don't know each other's struggles and hardships, when you don't have people that can pray for you. And I hope that each of you at least has one person in your life where you can share your deepest struggles with another Christian that can pray for you and encourage you and help you. And if you don't have that, I encourage you to find that. 
That's why I love how we pray for, how Gideon asked for prayer requests before the service so we can pray for each other through the week. Uh, my, my practice is to write your prayer requests in the, the worship folder, and then I have that throughout the week, and I save my worship folder so I can go back and look and see who's been coming to church, who's been asking for prayer, what have they been praying for, and how can I pray for uh, those that God has entrusted to me at this church and to the session, to Peter, and to the team, Gideon, and to Deborah, how we can be praying for you and encouraging you. And I would encourage all of us to do the same. Because we're a family, and we're children together. We're adopted children together of a holy father who reigns in heaven and whose son will come like a thief in the night. So let's be ready and let's encourage each other with these things. Let's live in such a way, is this a summary application? Let's live in such a way as we gather and as we scatter throughout the week that we won't be ashamed at the coming of our Lord. And that by the sanctifying grace of Jesus that we will be blameless at his coming our flesh will be our flesh as long as we live which is sinful and drawing us back it's the old man to use paul's language but our minds are being renewed and we're called to sanctify ourselves to fight sin with the help and with the power of the holy spirit and the encouragement of one another to encourage each other to faith to hope, to love. May we be found blameless at the coming of the Lord. On this warning against falling asleep on the field of battle, John Calvin writes, whoever is afraid of being surprised by the enemy must keep awake. We must keep awake that he may be constantly on watch As therefore Paul has exhorted to vigilance on the ground that the doctrine of the gospel is like the light of day, so he now stirs us up by another argument that we must wage war with our enemy. That's what we're called to do. And thus Paul then concludes, this is a fourth and final point, or a fourth and final thing for you to see in this letter, is that Paul prays for the church to be completely sanctified for the second coming. Paul gives this beautiful final benediction in chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24. Look at that with me. Right after uh, Paul says, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil, reminding us of our call to sanctification. He gives this beautiful benediction in verse 23 and 24, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This last beautiful benediction and encouragement that Paul gives is a reminder that 
ultimately, even when you're fighting for your sanctification, who's ultimately doing it? It's God. That's one of the great mysteries of the Christian life. God's sovereignty in our will. God's sovereignty in our will. And it's ultimately something we can't comprehend. Because we have finite minds. We have limited minds. And God is infinite. How can something we're doing be something God's actually doing? But we've already seen this in a few of Paul's letters. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, I worked harder than any of the other disciples. Though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul's working hard for the gospel ultimately was actually energy that God gave. So that ultimately, even though it felt like Paul was doing it, the glory and credit goes to God. Paul said the same thing in Colossians when he talked about how he toils to present every member mature. And he says, I do this with God who powerfully works within me. And in the same way, this call to sanctification, though it feels like us confessing sin, mortifying the flesh, putting to death our earthly desires, it feels like us doing it. But it's actually God. It's the Spirit at work in you. And that's why his prayer here, even though he's exhorted the Thessalonians to do this work, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, abstain from every form of evil. At the end of the day, he prays that God would make it happen so that actually the glory of fighting sin ultimately is God's and not our own. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So do you get this mystery? It's God's work in you, but it feels like we're doing it. But at the end of the day, isn't that a great encouragement? Because if it's up to us, we will fail. You know yourselves. I know myself. If it's up to us, we will fail. But the greatest encouragement of all in a letter that Paul's writing to encourage one another as Jesus comes is that he who is faithful will surely do it. So never let the devil whisper in your ears when you struggle with sin that you're a failure. God's given up on you. Keep alert, brothers and sisters. Remember the sound doctrine of our Lord and that he who is faithful will surely do the work of complete sanctification in you. So fight the good fight. Strive for holiness. Strive for the life of faith, of hope, of love. Knowing that even when you are weak and incapable, God will do it in you. And let's stick together as the day of Christ approaches. Because we need one another to encourage one another with these good, sound words that have been given to us by Paul. That even Paul's work is actually from God, right? Paul worked to write this letter. But it was actually God writing it.
through the Spirit. So let's rejoice and glorify the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the means and the power and the energy for us to do this sanctifying work that we've been called to do. So that on the last day, we have no boast, but in our God, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit that empowers us for the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, may we be sanctified for the second coming. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for an encouraging letter from the Apostle Paul. That's so timely, not only for the Thessalonians, but also for us today. I pray that we would remember that your will for us is our sanctification and that we would strive for that. That as we suffer loss in this life, that we would not grieve as those without hope. And Lord, I pray that we would not fall asleep on the field of battle and be slaughtered by the enemy. I pray that our faith would stand firm. I pray that we would put on the full armor of God so that we could stand and endure the battle. That we would be ready for our Lord, our great general in heaven, to return. And that we would be found by your grace blameless at his coming through the sanctifying and empowering work of the Holy Spirit through your means of using the church and the word preached and the prayers of the saints to prepare us for that day. Lord, when it seems like the Lord's second coming is a long way off, it's easy to live for the world. But Lord, I pray that through the encouragement of, of the church members and of one another here, by the working of your spirit and in the word, that again, we would not live for the world and as children of darkness, but as children of light, whose sure, whose infallible, unstoppable, unquenchable hope is in heaven. I pray that we would live our days in light of eternity. And that we would make the most of the time for the days are evil. Amen. Well, speaking of the encouragement of the church body, we have the